In the last lecture, we were talking about Plato's Republic and the relationship between poetry and music education and philosophy. Notice we didn't even talk about philosophy in that last lecture. And it turns out that Plato doesn't introduce philosophy until book six of Plato's Republic. He takes a long time to get there. And it's important to see how he gets there. So remember, the argument from the first lecture was that philosophy depends upon this kind of education and poetry, this forming of the imagination and the emotions so that they're trained to help us see reality as it is. But the question is, who is doing the training? Who is providing the education to the young? That implies that you know the soul that you know what the right stories are, what the right rhythm and harmony are to prepare that soul for knowing reality. And so that raises the practical question as they're constructing this city, who's going to rule it? Who knows enough to rule the city? And at that point, Socrates drops one of the most uh, explosive philosophical bombs in the history of philosophy. He says, philosophers need to rule the city when it's in its best condition. So he makes the claim for the philosopher king. Now, if you know the story um, uh, about what Socrates has said prior to this point, uh, it's even more remarkable the way his interlocutors guffaw at this. They're willing to swallow so much about this city that's a little bit absurd, but that is one thing where they stop him and say, you've got to give a defense of this because they have a view of what philosophy is. Um, and that view looks like itinerant, poor, uh, shoddily dressed people walking through the streets of Athens trying to make money by giving accounts of reality and arguing with each other and frankly not being all that useful. So Socrates says, I need to tell you what philosophy really is. And he does it through two images that I want to highlight in this lecture. And they are two extraordinary images. And we will hardly even begin to scratch the surface of them. But they show us why poetry is not only useful at the beginning for shaping the soul to prepare us to see, but that images can actually enrich our perception of reality. Fostering a good image can do something that mere description or mere argument can't do. So we're going to look at the image of the divided line and the image of the allegory of the cave. First of all, before we get to the, to the divided line, let's just back up a little bit. Who is the philosopher? Socrates gives us an example. He says, well, look around you. You see people who love beautiful things. Maybe you're one of them. You like to look at beautiful things. You love to see a sunset. 
You love to go to an art museum and look at different kinds of works of art. You love the shapes and colors of things. We're all lovers of beautiful things. Socrates says, okay, so let's say you're the kind of person who likes to go to uh, art museums to look at beautiful paintings. So you look at the first painting and you think, hmm, that's beautiful. And then you go to the next painting and you think, that's beautiful. And then you go to a third painting and say, that's beautiful too. All the paintings are different, but they all seem to share this thing in common, which you're calling beautiful. Socrates says, what is that thing? What is the thing that makes painting A, painting B, and painting C all beautiful? There must be some form of beauty, which is in all three of those paintings, but somehow it must transcend those three paintings. No one of those paintings can exhaust it. The philosopher, Socrates tells us, is not just interested in seeing the many beautiful things, beautiful painting one, beautiful painting two, beautiful painting three. He wants to see beauty itself, the beauty that unifies your experience of beauty in each of those paintings. He wants to see the form of beauty. Now, Plato is known for his theory of the forms, as was Socrates to some degree. So I want you to think about this a little bit because it's basic to philosophy. Form has to be what makes all of reality intelligible. Whoa, what do you mean? Form is what makes two things look or seem similar to one another. Imagine if everything in the universe was radically different than any other thing, how would you ever understand anything? Think about it this way. You're probably sitting in a chair right now. You're sitting in a very particular chair, but notice that you call it a chair. It fits into a classification of kinds of things we call chairs. It has a form. The chair is not the desk. The chair is not the wall. The chair is not the carpeting. The chair is the chair. And every particular thing that you identify fits into a form, a class of things that makes it intelligible, that allows you to understand it. So Socrates argues that philosophers love the forms. And the forms are not just what make things intelligible. The forms are what make, are what make things real what makes them last. Go back to the museum. Let's say that, God forbid, someone destroys paintings A, B, and C. Would they destroy beauty itself? Would beauty no longer exist if all the paintings in the museum were destroyed? None of us think that. Beauty somehow is more permanent, more lasting, more unchanging than the particular beautiful things. And the philosopher has a desire in his soul. Socrates calls that desire eros. We use that word erotic, eros, and we maybe use it a little bit differently. We translate it as love, eros. He describes it as a passionate desire for union with forms. Uh, it's different than how we use it today. Uh, don't Google erotic and look it up or make sure you have your filter on. But that's not what Plato has in mind or Socrates has in mind when he uses erotic desire. 
That's the ground of philosophy. In fact, I think it's fair to call philosophy as Socrates understands it, or Plato. I have a hard time distinguishing between them. Socrates describes philosophy really as eros-sophie. It's a passionate love for wisdom, not just a friendship for wisdom. There is one more thing you need to understand about form before we move to the divided line. Notice that when you're in the art museum looking at your beautiful painting, you, you are there with your eyes and your body, and the painting is there. But in order for you to see that painting, you need a third thing, light. We can't see anything without light. And Socrates argues that the ruling sort of source of light in the ancient world is the sun. And that makes a lot of sense because this is before Thomas Edison. The sun rules the visible world in terms of giving light and connecting our eyes to visible things. But then what allows us to see the form of beauty? We have to have an intellect and we have to have the form. Something has to unite those. And this is what Socrates calls the idea of the good, the source of light in the intelligible world. Now we're in a position to understand uh, Socrates' first image, the image of the divided line. So in book six, Socrates tells uh, his interlocutors this. He says, then take a line cut in two unequal segments, one for the class that is seen and the other for the class that is intellected, and to go on and cut each segment in the same ratio. Now in terms of relative clarity and obscurity, you'll have one segment of the visible part for images, I mean by images first shadows, then appearances produced in water, and in all close-grained, smooth, bright things, and everything of the sort you understand. Then in the other segment, put that of which this first is the likeness, the animals around us, and everything that grows, and the whole class of artifacts. Okay, why does Socrates give us an image of a divided line? Why does he divide it up this way to help us see what he's saying about philosophy? So notice the divided line has these four sections. And what I want to do is try to illustrate for you what Socrates is doing with these four sections of the divided line. Imagine that I draw an object for you. If I ask you what this is, I hope that all of you will say it is a triangle. You recognize it immediately. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that I'm holding a mirror in my hand. And I hold the mirror up against this triangle, and I ask you to look into the mirror, and I say, what are you seeing in this mirror? You might respond, I hope, I see a triangle in that mirror. Very good. Well, my question for you is, which is more real? The image of the triangle in the mirror or the image of the triangle that I've written on this chalkboard? All of you, I think, would say the image in the mirror is less real than the image it's reflecting. The mirror is less real. Wow, that's kind of explosive. And I just want to pause there for a moment and remind you that in this image then, there can be degrees of reality. Things can be more or less real. The, the mirror moves away, the image is gone, it can be other things. The 
triangle on the, on the chalkboard is more stable. It's more real. It's more visible. Now let's say I erase this triangle. Have triangles disappeared from reality? No. This one triangle does not constitute all triangles. Now, what are some things I know about this triangle? Let's say that I say all of reality must be tangible reality, visible reality. That's an opinion we sometimes hear, that all we can know are the things that our senses can perceive. But here's the thing. There's something we know about a triangle besides the fact that it has three angles. We know, for example, that the internal angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees. Okay? How do we know that? Well, if you're one of my kids who hates math, you get out some kind of ruler or, uh, or a protractor and you lay it down and you start trying to see how many degrees inside my triangle, see if that's really true. Is that how we know the interior angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees? Do we know because we measured them? So first we go to this triangle, then we draw another triangle, then we draw a third triangle, we just keep measuring them. But what happens when we encounter a triangle whose angles don't have to add up to 180 degrees? So we only kind of know. Okay. I hope I'm making my point here that we, we don't know this truth about the triangle by measuring the sensible reality of triangles. In fact, I don't know that you could ever get a perfect measurement of a visible triangle to show that the angles add up to 180 degrees. The way we know it is through a proof. Euclid is one of the great ancient thinkers who shows us the properties of geometric arguments by giving us proofs. It is a remarkable thing to see how you can do a proof that is not a matter of measuring some visible reality, but seeing a necessary logical connection between a set of propositions and a conclusion. And the imagination and creativity that goes into discovering that proof. But then what it turns out is that what you know of a triangle is not the visible triangle. Every visible triangle in the world could disappear and you would still know that a triangle exists and has necessary and certain properties that could never be proved in the visible world. As soon as you go to prove the properties of a triangle, you are launched from the visible world to the invisible world. And that also is a kind of stunning reality. But then you ask, why does a triangle have these properties? Do triangles exist? How did I ever find a triangle? You start to ask about the very first definitions or propositions in Euclid. What is a point? Does a point exist? And suddenly your mind goes even further to the very basis of all reality, the forms themselves. Now, I think you're in a position to understand the divided line. So Socrates wants to give us a visual image of what? Okay, what is this a divided line, an image of? Here's a shocker. This is meant to be a map 
of reality. Okay, if I asked you at the beginning of this lecture, uh, I want you to take out a pen and piece of paper, draw me a map of reality, please. What would you come up with? Now think about the achievement here. Our world is constituted, and let's, and let's look at the two columns here. So we've, we've got a visible world and an invisible world, and I've just gone through them with a the triangle. And within the visible world, we've got this relationship between knowers and the things known. So on the right-hand column are the things known. On, on, on uh, my right, your left, if you're looking at the picture. On the other column, we have the knower and the properties of the knower corresponding to the things known. And then we have the thing unifying them. In the visible world, it's the sun. In the intelligible world, it's the idea of the good. And what we see then is degrees of reality, starting at the bottom with the images of things, which are very impermanent, less real, to the visible things, to the invisible mathematical things that launch us first from the visible into the invisible world of intelligible reality, and then to the forms themselves. Socrates assigns a name for each of these regions. So corresponding to images, he thinks we have a mental power, which he calls here imagination. For the visible things, he gives us a mental power, which he calls trust. Interesting word. The Greek is pistis. It gets translated as faith in the New Testament. Pistis. Then in the invisible realm, he gives us the mathematical forms, and he calls the mental ability to see the mathematical objects thought. And then the forms themselves, he calls intellect, nous, intellection. And so now here's what I want something to notice about this divided line. In this picture of the divided line, all of reality is, is mapped out here. Everything is intelligible. Everything coheres. So the images are always images of something visible. And the visible things are all backed up by a deeper, intelligible reality. So that although reality has degrees of depth and is stratified in this way, all of those things can act as sort of uh, ways of entering into the depth of reality. Now, what Socrates suggests is that back behind this whole intelligible map that he gives us, there must be some cause. And he identifies that cause as the ground of that whole reality. He calls in the Republic the idea of the good. And that then gives us some idea of what philosophy is. Philosophy is to know not just the particular beautiful things, but beauty itself, to know the ground of everything, to know the idea of the good. Just to prepare us for what's going to come. Philosophy builds in this divided line. It tells us there are, in fact, uh, three different areas in philosophy that one can pay attention to and study. And uh, these are some big words now. So the, the side of the line that, that is about the, the nature of things, the images, the things themselves, and the invisible things, the study of that in philosophy is called ontology. You can say it ontology. Okay, the other word is tougher. There's also a side in us, the knowers, that corresponds to it. The study of how we know, our knowing faculties. That in philosophy is called epistemology. 
Ooh, that's a tougher one. You can say it. Epistemology. It just refers to the philosophy of the way we know things. I'm going to use those words, ontology and epistemology later, but I'll explain what I mean again and just remind you. But get used to them. I Trust me, you will sound so cool the next time you go to a party and say, that's an epistemological question. That will be a great move. At the top, with the idea of the good, is metaphysics. Metaphysics, then, is the, is the area of philosophy in which we study the first principles of all of reality. So metaphysics, ontology, epistemology on the divided line. Okay, at this point we think, okay, I've got reality. I've got it covered. Uh, I, I see the map of reality. I see it all makes sense. And then Socrates ends, Plato ends book six, and he goes to book seven and says, I need to give you another image. I thought we already saw all of reality. No, imagine the human condition like this. And here's how he begins this image at the beginning of book seven. Next then, I said, make an image of our nature and its education and want of education, likening it to a condition of the following kind. See human beings as though they were in an underground cave-like dwelling with its entrance a long one open to the light across the whole width of the cave. They are in it from childhood with their legs and necks in bonds so that they are fixed, seen only in front of them, unable because of the bond to turn their heads all the way around. Their light is from a fire burning far above and behind them. Between the fire and the prisoners there is a road above along which see a wall built like the partitions puppet handlers set in front of the human beings and over which they show puppets. Now, Glaucon in this image says, that is a strange image. And Socrates' reply is, they're like us. Socrates next gives us the second image, the image of the allegory of the cave. Let's imagine for a moment that uh, this is a cave. It looks something like this. Okay. And Socrates says, imagine there were people sitting in the cave, chained to the ground, looking at the wall at the bottom of the cave. These are the prisoners, okay? And then he suggests that there's some path up the cave, and there are more people up here on the next level. And they're holding things, like an apple, maybe. And there's a fire behind them. And the fire casts light onto the image, and so the people in the bottom of the cave only see the image cast by the fire onto the wall of the cave. They don't actually see the apple. And then outside the cave, we've got puddles and trees, maybe with real apples on them. And at the very top, the sun. Okay, so you can see pretty quickly maybe that this cave image corresponds to the divided line. Images, things, maybe mathematical objects, and the, the idea of the good are the forms themselves. It roughly corresponds. Now, Socrates puts this into a drama. And he first says, okay, those prisoners down at the bottom of the cave, they're like us. And that's Perplexing. How are we like prisoners? He says, we are bound to see 
Our natural condition is bound to see images of things. And we might ask us, what are the chains that bind us to seeing things as they are? What are those chains? That's something to reflect on. The chains that prevent us from looking at the truth of things. Vanity, fear, pride, uh, undue attachment. So many things in our nature that attach us to the things that we think we know are true and prevent us from making the turn. So Socrates asks us to imagine what it would be like if someone's chains were broken and they were forced to turn around and make their way up to the next level of the cave. My students often uh, sympathize with this experience because this is what it feels like in the classroom. Uh, I'm dragging them away and up into the light. What's that experience like? When you're in a dark room and someone flips on the light, it hurts. It's painful. But the pain is not a bad pain because it's better to be in light than to be in dark. But sometimes our reaction is to want to stay in the dark. But this is more dramatic than that because it's, it's not just sensory, it's also mental. The, the, image, the image is on the wall with a whole picture of reality for the prisoner up to this point. And now he sees that that image was not quite accurate or correct, that there's something deeper behind reality than the things he's accustomed to looking at. A point I want to make about this is that Socrates beautifully describes uh, education as a breaking of the chains and a turning of the soul. That's a language you use. All education is turning. It's not putting the eye, it's not putting knowledge into a brain that's not there. It's turning the interior of the soul so it can see correctly. What a beautiful image for education. And this image, by the way, is an image of, edu of education, of liberal education. And to add one more thing, our very word, education, is from this image in Plato's Republic, educare, to lead out from the cave. So the prisoner is dragged into the next level and sees the next level of people holding these images and casting the shadows on the wall. They are the image makers. Image makers. Who are the image makers? Who are the image makers in our own culture? Think about it. I assume that you've seen commercials before. How do they work? Image makers. They cast images, the nice car, the nice clothing, the nice deodorant product, casting images into our souls to do what? To help us reimagine reality a different way and to then desire those things that are being cast. How about musicians, the songs we listen to, the movies we watch? Think at a deeper level about the very language we use. And then I want you to think about this. How deeply our contact with reality is mediated by the images we've gotten. Our very first experience of an apple was that we remember was probably accompanied by the word apple. A word that mediated our whole conception of what an apple is. And when you see an apple, some of you might think immediately of the, the, the story of the fall in Genesis. You bring to it all kinds of things that are not immediate. So Plato wants to suggest, or Socrates, I'll say, wants to suggest to us that all of knowledge, in some sense, involves 
interpreting reality through images. But then the question is, do the image makers actually know enough to make the images? What is the goal? Do we want these prisoners to see reality as it is? Or are we manipulating? Do you see that the whole area of this part of the cave could be a, a layer of just pure manipulation of images? But Socrates says, no, there's more. Keep going. We can get outside the cave and now we're ready for it. It hurts this time because the sun is a lot brighter than the fire. And you can't look at the sun when you get out of the cave. The first thing you have to look at are the things around you, maybe images in puddles is how he describes it. And then you can look at the tree and maybe the apples on the tree. And then when your eyesight has grown strong and powerful enough, you can look at the sun. And then you know the full depth and plenitude of reality, of being. Think about that cascading all the way down. So what we get here now is what was missing in that image of the divided line. The human dramatic journey of philosophy. Philosophy is the movement from those images to things to the forms to the idea of the good. Philosophy is the love of the thing at the top here, the idea of the good itself. And there's a question, however, lots of rich questions here, like, uh, why don't we just free everyone from the chains? Can all of the chains be broken? And then we, and Socrates tells us about the break in the chains. He says, imagine if the philosopher were to go back in to the cave and tell the prisoners, hey, you guys would not believe what I just saw. What do you think the prisoners do? Hey, take us, let's go. Some of them might, but most of them say, you're talking nonsense. Stop undermining our beliefs about these images on the wall. And this is Socrates' account. When the prisoner who'd been released keeps telling them they threatened to kill him. Wow. Threatened to kill him. In other words, the cave is like the city of Athens. The cave is like any city. All political regimes are somewhat cave-like. All of us are prisoners in some sense. All of us see images, and we want to make that journey. How do we make it? If Socrates wants to free us from the chains, and now I'm just, I'm interpreting this, this image a little bit for you. How, how would we break those chains? What does that look like exactly? Physically, we could say we just go down and break them and drag people out. You just gotta, you just gotta drag them out physically and break those chains. There's a word for that, a phrase. It's called the French Revolution. It didn't end well. There's another way. What if you go up to the level of the image makers? What if you can cast images which allow the prisoners to slowly turn on their own, to be released from their own bonds through those images so that they can turn and make that journey themselves? Maybe this is a clue as to why Plato writes dramatic dialogues. What is Plato's Republic but an image? And what does he give us in that book but images that are meant to turn our souls? As I tell my students, maybe 
we can't ultimately get past the images. And in fact, Socrates tells us, I mean, Glaucon gets so excited in this image, he says, take me out there, take me every step of the way, show me the idea of the good. Don't shut up until we see the idea of the good. And Socrates says, I'm sorry, I can't take you there. In fact, I've never been there. I don't know what it's like, but I know it exists. That's philosophy. You've got to make the journey yourself. But what Socrates shows us is that if the cave is a city in which opinion or images are part of that city, not all caves are created equal. Not all cities are created equal. Some images are more powerful at turning our souls towards reality. Some images positively prohibit us from seeing reality. They obstruct our ability to see. We're back again at this deep relationship between the imagination of poetry and philosophy. So what have we gotten here? Just briefly, in these two images, we've gotten a picture of reality as being stratified, of thinking about how there are depths of richness in reality, and philosophy involves going deeper and deeper and deeper into those depths of reality. Secondly, we've seen that that process involves a kind of education. It involves a turning of the soul, that there are obstacles in us, that we don't naturally appear in the world knowing those depths. We have to turn our souls and make the journey through the cave to the idea of the good. In all the rest of Book 7, Socrates gives us the very first account of a liberal education, the quadrivium. He goes through arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, takes us all the way through those steps that people in classical education know about. Those. This is the first place it happens. And then he brings us to dialectic. The end point of that liberal education is when you're asking questions about the first principles of reality. So those are two images to get you going, and you should have plenty to think about and talk about. Next lecture, we start with our other eye, Aristotle. <laughs>